1: Well, we talk a lot about health care these days and how it may change due to uh, new congressional efforts. But here someone is living with it and is in our studio right now. Alan Miller, chief executive officer of Universal Health Services, which is based in King of Prussia, Pennsylvania. But he is here with us in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Thank you so much for for joining us, Alan. Um, I want to start with your company, Universal Health. Its shares are up almost 18% so far this year. This doesn't really jibe with a lot of what we hear about the healthcare sector and how depressed it's been. What is your company doing that has sort of led to these returns?
0: Well, we've been in business for 38 years. Um, We've grown every year. Um, We um, are diversified. We are in acute care. We're in behavioral health. We're the leader in the nation in behavioral health. And we are international in the UK. We've been growing there. So it's a nice diversified mix. We've done well financially. Um, We are in fast-growing markets. That's our strategy. Uh, And we're reliable. People know the company. Um, We are conservative. Um, Our debt is less than 50%. Uh, Many others are much, much more leveraged. So uh, we've been doing this for a long time, and I think people have uh, become aware of us and they're comfortable that we're going to continue.
1: You know, uh, we're going to get to the political side of this in a minute, but I want to just touch on the situation for uh, hospitals in general, acute care hospitals across the country. We've heard a lot about uh, the uh, vacancy rates at in beds, the the fact that reimbursements from Medicaid and Medicare have been challenging. Uh, and I'm wondering, would you buy an acute care hospital right now?
0: Uh, we do. We just built one. Where? <laughs> we we just opened Henderson in Las Vegas, uh, it is our sixth acute care hospital in Las Vegas. Um, it is doing very well. Uh, we opened two years ago. We opened in Temecula, uh, in Southern California. It's doing very well. Oh yes, we we buy hospitals and we build hospitals. So,
1: what's the issue here? Why do we hear so much uh, talk about the decline in hospitals?
0: I don't understand it. Um, other than Um, People are reflecting the fact that perhaps, I'm sure, um, Obamacare um, insured uh, 20 to 25 million people who did not have insurance before. And so that has been very good for the hospitals uh, because obviously when these people present themselves at a hospital, they have some sort of ability to pay where they may have not been able to do that in the past. So that's certainly very positive if, if your patients can pay. And um, now, with Obamacare uh, in question because of uh, the Republican Party saying that they would replace it uh, and their efforts have not been successful at the first crack, and um, without going through all of it, which I am very familiar with, um, I'm it, sure did, you are. it did tend... It's complicated. It did tend to um, reduce coverage. That's what the the big drawback was. <clears throat> and a lot of people, including many Republicans in Congress, said uh, we can't uh, stop coverage or withdraw coverage Um from all these people that need it. Everyone should have coverage. Have
1: any Republican leaders reached out to you to ask you advice on how to reshape or or fine-tune Well, yes. Um,
0: I wrote a book a number of years ago, and a number of those things um, or a number of the suggestions in the book uh, are still applicable. Uh, One of them is selling across state lines, and you see that now. Uh, because that would get the insurance companies more competitive, and they more of them would come into every market. So that makes a lot of sense. Um, I've always been very keen on tort reform uh, because trial lawyers should not be uh, involved in premiums uh, of insurance. And there needs to be a tort reform um, on a national basis, state by state, it's happened.
1: Just to be clear, this is in yeah. order to cap potential medical uh, malpractice exactly. laws, yeah. uh, bills, malpractice. And, and some of the premiums. Oh, right. exactly. To give some sense of the premiums for, say, uh, you know, a neurosurgeon, it's something like a hundred thousand dollars a year, or something to insure yourself. Right? It's something. It's something pretty, pretty tremendous.
0: It's it's out, it's it's outrageous, only because of um, the 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 trial lawyers. And um, uh, situations where there's no cap on pain and suffering, we're not talking about um, people being reimbursed for care. We're talking about um, an outrageous situation, uh, in, in most cases, where... Um trial lawyers are, are driving up insurance premiums.
1: What about drug prices? There's been so much discussion about um, how uh, high the cost is for pharmaceuticals. Do you feel like this issue is something that is overblown? Do you think that there are many savings that could come from some kind of uh, agreement?
0: I think what should happen or what could happen <clears throat> is uh, let the federal government um, negotiate with uh, the pharma industry. Um, we buy uh, out of a cooperative, and so we do negotiate um, on an industry-wide basis, um, based on volume. Uh, other than that, I'm not an expert on.
1: Wait, hold on a second. Yes. What what kind of cooperative is this?
0: Uh, it's called Premier, and we buy oh, through I'm it. With Premier. Yeah, absolutely. And a number of hospitals are involved, and it's just a question of volume. Uh, which is basic business. If you have a lot of volume, the sellers are very interested in dealing with you.
1: So how optimistic are you that there will be good changes made to uh, Obamacare or a potential replacement to it?
0: Well, I think that um, the things I started to mention, or I did mention to you, um, would be helpful. And uh, the big thing is um, getting younger people to have insurance um, this enables the insurance companies, their actuaries, to not only uh, be looking at older people who are sicker, but having younger people in the mix makes the insurance more affordable, and they have not been able to—the um, mandates were too small to, to push these people to have insurance. We must have the younger people insured in order to make the whole insurance thing work.
1: Alan Miller, thank you so much for joining us. really is uh, wonderful to have you. Alan Miller is Chief Executive Officer of Universal Health Services. It is based in King of Prussia, Pennsylvania, and it's a a broad-based, multifaceted company that owns uh, behavioral health facilities, acute care hospitals, and ambulatory centers throughout the US, uh, the UK, Puerto Rico, and the Virgin Islands. leverage in U.S. stocks has risen to the highest level on record. How concerned are investors about this? I am honored to bring in David a Global Market Strategist for J.P. Morgan, who's here with us in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. And uh, David, we were just chatting about how much uh, margin debt has increased in U.S. stocks. Uh, This, to me, indicates an incredible amount of complacency uh, just that people are willing to double down on their bets. How are you taking this? And does this sort of uh, raise some kind of alarm to you?
2: You know, I, I think that the the biggest concern is what this means and what it tells us about investor sentiment. You know, are investors so excited about equities that they're willing to borrow money to pump even more into the stock market? And I think that it's, it's, it's reasonable to look at this and see the rate of change and see the levels that we're currently sitting at from a margin debt standpoint and say, you know, has this market come too far too fast? So? And we have, and that's the and that's the question you know we have <laughs> seen the answer is... we have seen quite a rally here but it's our view that the underlying economic fundamentals actually look pretty good You know, this rally really began, um, or at least we started to see yields rise and and give some more confidence to the equity market, you know, back in the late summer of 2016. So the economic data has been getting better for a while. You know, I think that the pullback we've seen here in the market is probably justified. It's a little bit more of a backfill um, as opposed to the beginning of something bigger. But what we're focused on is the upcoming earnings season you know, the question to our mind is, are these companies making money if the cash flows are there, if the earnings are there? I think stock prices can keep moving higher. Uh, if we see some weakness in earnings, I think that this things like margin debt may be, uh, may be worth keeping an eye on.
1: Well, I mean, we are seeing some other cracks. I mean, because we were just talking about how that seems to be the consensus right now that the economy is in fairly good shape, that you know, despite some clouds around the edges. In general, things are chugging along. But we did see a pretty uh, substantial decline in uh, commercial and industrial loans on U.S. bank balance sheets uh, in a recent survey. And this raised some alarms that either banks were tightening up their lending criteria Mm -hmm. to such a degree that they're not allowing uh, companies to get credit or that there just isn't the demand, which suggests the economy isn't growing that fast. How do you interpret this?
2: You know, we think that it's not as much a bank issue. Um, Lending standards have been pretty tight and then you know the, the quality of borrowers that banks are looking for has been pretty elevated for the better part of this business cycle. Um, actually one thing that we've found is that when you look at capital expenditures and you look at CNI loans, um, the capital expenditure data actually tends to lead some of the CNI data. So actually what I think's going on here in terms of the decline in the lending data is you know, we went through this period from mid2014 to mid-2016 where manufacturing was under a tremendous amount of pressure because of lower commodity prices and a stronger dollar. I think we're just seeing some lagged effects of that and some of the pullback in investment that companies – Uh, went through. And that's why we're seeing C&I loans cool off a little bit here. We don't necessarily think, again, it's the beginning of something bigger. Uh, More, we think it's a reflection of what's actually happened in the past.
1: You know, given the fact that what you're saying is so coherent with what and jibes so directly with what a lot of other people are saying, which is the economy is doing fairly well, some of these warning signs are a little concerning, but they're not anything that big. Uh, It seems like people are sort of pricing in the same scenario, which is sort of Chugging along growth, does this mean A that returns are going to be a lot lower because everybody's piling into the same trades and there isn't a lot of value to be found? Mm-hmm. Or B, that everybody's missing something and that the chance of a of a substantial hiccup is getting greater?
2: You know, I, I think that it's more the former than the latter. I think that return expectations for US assets in general, both stocks and bonds, have certainly come down here. How much uh, over what's, the what's past your expectation couple of years? So, so so our view is that over the next ten to fifteen years, US equities should return you about five and a half. A year, um, which is, you know, a couple percent below the the seven and eight percent bogeys that have been thrown around previously. But what I would say is just because there's not dwindling opportunity, perhaps less opportunity from a return standpoint in the U.S., we're thinking much more seriously about opportunities in Europe, opportunities in emerging markets, uh, places outside of the U.S. where the potential for elevated returns seems to be a little bit greater uh, than here in the States. So
1: where are you looking in particular?
2: So within emerging markets, we like the Asian economies more than the Latin American economies. We like the manufacturers uh, more than the commodity exporters. And then within Europe, you know, we're really focusing on the domestic recovery that's going on there. You have an unemployment rate which is back down at the level where it was before the double dip back in 2012. You have capacity utilization, which is up around its long-term average. The PMI data, uh, it is a survey, but the PMI data has been pretty solid there. So we think that playing this domestic recovery, thinking about some of the consumer companies in Europe, uh, is a good way of going about that.
1: How hard is it to invest in Asia, given the questions around the quality of some of the economic data that you get out of there?
2: It's... It's difficult, you know. China, in particular, is kind of a kind of a black box. They say we have this six and a half percent growth target, and magically, they seem to come very close to six and a half. Well,
1: did you read the article about? I think it was BlackRock using drones to look at factories in China to sort of assess uh, growth in their own way.
2: I I have. I've heard about the satellite images where people are counting the cars in the parking lot. You know, some of the things that we do is we look at, for example, the Taiwan import data from China rather than the China export data to Taiwan. So we try to square that circle in a couple of different ways. But the, the, the benefit for investors is they're getting access to more information. They're finding themselves with new and different ways of building a picture around what's going on in emerging markets. So The data has been an issue. The data will continue to be somewhat of an issue. But I think we're moving in the right direction. And I think that investors are able to get a better sense um, of the profitability of some of these companies.
1: What's the biggest risk area right now in markets?
2: So I think that there are a couple of risks. Right now, to me, the markets are standing on kind of two pillars. Uh, One of them is a political pillar and one of them is a nominal growth pillar. Now, the political pillar, you know, both in the us and abroad, is looking a little bit wobbly. We saw the u k you know begin their Brexit negotiations the other day. Um, we've had some disappointments here in the u s. in terms of the pace of uh, of policy reform relative to what some people were expecting. But the nominal growth pillar still looks OK. So I think one of the biggest risks is that the nominal data, that the activity data starts to deteriorate. Because you know we're, we're investors, right? We're trying to follow the cash flows. We're trying to find the companies that are generating earnings. And if the economic data starts to deteriorate, that's a signal that it's going to be more difficult for these companies to generate profits going forward. And if we think back to the last time that happened, again, from mid-14 to mid-16, right? the stock market didn't go anywhere. People always say to me, David, why didn't the stock market go anywhere from June 2014 until the middle of 2016? And my answer is, well, because earnings weren't growing. So the biggest risk, in my view, is that the activity data rolls over and that passes through and hinders uh, corporate profitability.
1: All right. Thank you so much for joining us. Really Thanks a pleasure speaking me. with you. David Leibovitz, he is the global market strategist for J.P. Morgan Investment Management. And He joins us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Uh, right now, I want to talk about a three-day gathering that's happening in May uh, that's going to be hosted by Amazon and attended by executives from General Mills and Mondelez, among others. Craig Giomana, who wrote this fantastic story, is here with us in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Craig, Um this is a tremendously interesting story because it really highlights how Amazon is trying to take over the entire retailing sector. Can you tell us a little bit about this three-day meeting?
3: Yeah, so, I mean, you're right. Amazon is trying to take over everything. They're the everything store. And kind of the one area that they haven't really cracked is food. You know, they only – e-commerce for groceries is only like 1.5% of the market. Amazon has taken over everything else. And they're kind of looking at this really hard. And comes we've come to find out that in May they're bringing, you know – big companies sort of from the CPG world, consumer packaged goods and household products out to Seattle to talk about logistics and supply chain stuff. And they're basically trying to get General Mills and Mondelez and these companies that make our food to think about a world where e-commerce is primary. So put it in different boxes and package it in a way that we can ship it directly to people. So this is Amazon really muscling in more to the grocery store's turf.
1: And just to be clear, right now, food goes largely through Walmart, Target or Costco and then it could potentially be ordered on Amazon, right?
3: There's, there's plenty of delivery services that have popped up. I mean, I think in New York City, that stuff is popular. But you got to remember, it's a big country out there. And like I said, 1.5% of the grocery market is online. So really, we're talking about 98.5% of people still going to Kroger, Albertson, Safeway to shop for groceries. People don't buy food online at this point. But it's growing, and it's clearly has gotten the attention of the general Millses of the world. These guys are struggling for sales growth, and they really can't ignore Amazon. and they're trying to figure out, you know, a world where, like everything else, people used to say, we're never going to buy shoes online. We have to try them on, or we're not going to buy books online. But that's where we are with food. It's kind of the last frontier.
1: Well, but to get a sense, I mean, because to your point, you were saying in the city, it's pretty popular with Fresh Direct or even just other delivery services Mm -hmm. from grocery stores. It's more popular because people don't have cars. Uh, But in other places, I mean, what's the challenge for Amazon, just with respect to distribution, of of shipping fresh food and, and, you know, some organization like Fresh Direct, How much penetration have they gotten outside of cities?
3: But the short answer is not much. Fresh Direct does well in New York City. There's something called Peapod, which is owned by the company that owns Stop and Shop. They've done okay. But it's called The Last Mile, basically – it's just incredibly expensive to run those trucks and to do it economically. When you have one house on a block in the suburbs to run a refrigerated truck out there, make sure the ice cream is cold, all the produce looks how the people want it, the steak is what they want. Amazon's been trying this for years. Amazon has been going after fresh food for, you know, a decade at least and it just hasn't worked. So now they're really stepping up those efforts.
1: So is this do you expect that at this 3-day meeting part of the discussion will be how they can more efficiently transport these goods to to people's houses rather than to the stores
3: yes i mean i think what we know about it is it's amazon saying to these big companies hey let's come out and let's talk about a world where you're thinking not necessarily about the store first but about selling stuff direct to consumers online so the cheerios box think about that that's set up to catch your eye in a store you know, years and years, decades of people grocery shopping that way. That's how the box is designed. So Amazon is going to say, let's think about, we don't need this box like this necessarily. Let's put it in a box that we can take real quick and ship it out. So it's just them getting, you know, trying to get these companies to change their mindset a bit.
1: So the Walmart targets and Costco's of the world, they must be fighting back.
3: They are right. So Walmart, the big thing for Walmart is something called click and collect. Where, basically, you're going to go online, order order your food, you drive up to the curb, and they have it ready for you. Because Walmart wants to live in a world where you're still maybe going to go into that store. Plus, in a big part of the country, people are out on the weekends in their cars. Again, this is a bit of a sort of New York City, San Francisco versus the rest of the country thing. It's still convenient for people to pick up those groceries in their cars. So, you know, Walmart is just desperate to get you into the store where you start grabbing other stuff. That's how they make their margins.
1: Is this the first time Amazon has held a meeting like this?
3: That we know of. That we know of. And I mean, again, it's a very, very small part of the business. And you know, grocery stores aren't going away anytime soon. But I think why this is so interesting to everyone is that food is like the last thing that Amazon hasn't cracked. They've taken over electronics, clothes, books, all these other things. And now here they are coming hard for the food business. And they've been unsuccessful to this point, but are clearly going after it.
1: Craig Giamana, thank you so much for coming in and talking with us. Thank you. It's really a fascinating story. The last frontier for Amazon and uh, maybe the last frontier for some of these big retailers that want to keep a corner on this market. Craig is a consumer reporter here at Bloomberg News. Fresh off the plane from Hong Kong, Mark Gabay, CEO of Asia Pacific LaSalle Investment Management, is here with us in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. And I am so excited to speak with you, uh, Mark, about what the flows are doing right now from Asia to the U.S. with respect to real estate. Uh, First, I want to start with these images that I'm sure a lot of people have seen of these empty buildings that have been built in China with not enough people to fill them. Uh, This raises a lot of fear an expectation that the housing market in China is going to collapse. What do you tell your your clients in the U.S. who are looking to invest in China, and how
4: concerned are they? Right. So first of all, it's true. There are a lot of empty buildings in mostly the secondary cities in China, not so much the primary cities like a Shanghai or a Beijing, but some of the other secondary cities. So it is a concern. Uh, But overall, we tell people they have to understand in China, that is a store of wealth for the retail market. So there's not a lot of options for retail investors where to put their money in China. Bank deposit rates are low. They tend to, to put it in, in real estate. And so when they buy these units, they're not really looking to rent them out. So they're actually quite comfortable leaving them empty, which is atypical compared to the U.S., but typical for there.
1: But how much of these purchases are being financed with leverage?
4: It's not as highly levered as as the U.S. So usually we would say mortgage is there in the 50 to 60% range, maybe 70% tops. So in Asia, you tend to have a bank market for retail where more money is put down. So we don't believe it's leveraged, but we would say, is it a good thing for the overall real estate market? No, it's not good because if someone tried to sell some of those units, it'd be much harder to sell them on the secondary market.
1: So where are U.S. investors finding opportunities within Asian real estate right now?
4: Well, that really depends on your risk profile. If you're a high-risk investor or a low-risk investor, if you're a high-risk investor, then you are generally looking at the gateway cities and you're generally looking at commercial buildings that have good income profiles because fundamentally, borrowing rates are quite low in the region and you can still generate good cap rates on your buildings and that's creating nice cash flow. So Tokyo, Sydney, Seoul.
1: Um, And, you know, one thing that we were also talking about is, is a flip side. So... uh. For a long time, China's Chinese investors, or since 2010, Chinese investors have been steadily increasing their investment uh, in the U.S. and uh, in some of the big cities, and there's been a big question about whether we're going to start seeing a pullback of that money and those investments due to capital controls uh, in China, as well as a less uh, benevolent environment for them in the U.S. <laughs> yeah. um, what, what have you seen?
4: it will ebb and flow i don't think that will change but i think the overall trend will be the same they will continue to to flow out and look to diversify its holdings there's just so much capital saved up in china across the board uh, and it is trying to get out for purposes of diversification. And real estate tends to be an asset class that the Chinese like to use, again, to hold, you know, to store wealth. So they don't really look at it so much as a cash flow asset. They look at it as as a way to to, to save money and hold an asset over time.
1: Although we have seen reports about a slowdown in Chinese investors or Asian investors generally uh, in U.S. property.
4: There's a slowdown, but I think there's a lot of capital that's already outside of what well, we would characterize as Chinese capital that's already outside of China. And whether it's in Hong Kong or in Singapore and other cities, there's a fair amount of capital that's out, out there. So if there's a slowdown, I'd say it's temporary. Um, it's just the Chinese government trying to make sure the, the currency store stays in balance and there's not dramatic capital flight. But that trend's not going away. I'd expect we'd see more Chinese capital coming out.
1: So LaSalle Investment Management oversees about $7 billion of right. uh, real estate. Is that all in Asia?
4: That the seven we are sixty billion globally, with about twelve billion in securities and forty-eight billion in private. Of the forty-eight billion of private, seven billion of it is in is in Asia.
1: Okay, and so what have you invested in?
4: Um, recently, we've been um, buying quite a bit of office and um, logistics in in Tokyo. Uh, that's a favorite sector for us. Logistics in China is a favorite sector for us. Uh, retail in Australia.
1: What places have you been avoiding, or, or sort of? pulling back from?
4: For us, not really pulling back, but I'd say avoiding, we're not really an emerging market investor. So you don't see us investing in India. We don't invest in Vietnam, Philippines, Thailand. So we tend to stay in the developed markets because we think the risk return there is is quite favorable.
1: Do you think fears about China's economy exploding are uh, overblown right now?
4: We do think it's overblown. I think the Chinese have demonstrated they're a command economy, which means they can control um, a lot of what can be deemed as panic. I think they've done a good job controlling that in, in the last couple of years, and we expect they're going to continue to do it. So we don't think the hard landing scenario is really um, the main scenario. There's still potential of that, but it's not. We're not worried about it.
1: Given that, have you seen an increase in U.S. investors looking to invest in Asia?
4: Uh, definitely. We would say over the last couple of years, that trend line has probably been increasing ten to fifteen percent. Um, a year a year over year year so a couple of years ago we would say that's about a 20 billion dollar kind of uh, market in terms of investors coming to to uh, asia now it's it's in that 40 to 45 billion dollar range and recently we'd say there's much more european and us money coming into asia and i think it's about diversification fundamentally
1: and as far as Asian investors coming in, you were just saying real quick.
4: Kind of similar to that. I mean, it's also a double-digit growth rate. It's going to be bigger. But as you pointed out, it's going to ebb and flow a little bit. But it's been a consistent uptake year year over year. So I think what's happening is there's so much money saved in the world, and it's looking to put it, uh, find a home someplace, and real estate's natural.
1: A big ball of money just rolling around the world. Thank you so much for joining us. Mark Gabay, CEO of Asia Pacific at LaSalle Investment Management, uh, overseeing about $7 billion of assets, real estate assets in Asia.